is Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Uh, I'm excited to open up God's word with you. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you're here in person or on YouTube, we're glad that you all are here with us uh, to worship. Um, also, before I do open up the word, I did just want to repeat an announcement that we had made two Sundays ago. Um, and you've had a lot of electronic notices about, but sometimes it can get overwhelming in the inbox um, and on social media. So here are, the, here are the four things about our shepherding initiatives I just wanted to kind of quickly bullet point so that they're kind of in front of us on the dashboard of our lives. Uh, as a church, we're equipping more servant leaders. That means that we will have uh, a whole slew of officers coming through and deacons, elders, and also we're gonna have women shepherds. Um, who are, who are not officers, but will also help us in the congregational care. If you're a church member, you're officially in a shepherding group, um, and you should have heard from your shepherding elder, please use that as a resource to extend prayer and communication. Um, third, your session has assigned each elder a different specific ministry area that they're gonna oversee. They're not running day-to-day -day operations on, uh, but it's also helpful to have shepherding of the, the big picture church that we're in. Um, and uh, who's to what ministry areas also in emails and on Facebook. Fourth and finally, uh, we are opening up our search for uh, a new youth director and children's ministry director. And so if you have uh, leads, candidates, we'd love to hear them. You can talk to me or you can talk to Damon Anderson who was up here earlier. Um, uh, you can email us, you can email the church. We'd love to know, but also um, we just appreciate your prayer for that um, as we try to find the right people. Uh, to help us with uh, our younger people. <laughs> and so it's important uh, in our church body. So questions, comments, uh, good or bad, um, beautiful or ugly, we'd love them, bring them on. Um, and so just come talk to me, uh, come talk to any elder um, and, uh, or just email the church directly. So thank you for letting me say that. So today we're returning to our sermon series that we did on um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians into the middle of chapter two. Uh, this week, our passage on Ephesians two, uh, verses 14 through 18, begins with the word for. And this word for tells us that we're picking up where verses one through 13 of chapter two left off. And so our passage this morning continues to unpack what it means to relate to God as a part of Jesus's ordinary looking miracle, the church. And so the church we have versus the church that we want or, th or think we need. And so in verses 14 through 18, we're pushed into what it means to live out of the unity and power of having been brought near to God and near to each other by the blood of Christ. So before we dig deeper into this passage, would you join me in praying for our time in God's words this morning? 
Father, I do thank you that we get the opportunity to pray, um, to come to you and to hear from you. Uh, so much of our week is hearing from other people. So much of our week is us speaking for you, in my case, many times, but also in many of our cases, and also speaking and not listening. And I pray that this would be a chance to listen, to hear your words for us, for our lives, for this world, what you value. And I, Lord, I just pray that you would refine my words. May they represent your words. Would you help your words to be high and lifted up? May your word, Jesus Christ, be high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. And would you meet us by him through your spirit and through this word, wherever we may be, whether we're nearby or far off. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So my junior year of college, um, I did two things that both made perfect sense and probably seemed out of nowhere for most people. Uh, I grew my hair all the way down to my shoulders. <laughs> That's not untypical for a college male. <laughs> and I traveled uh, abroad. I went to East Asia, to specifically to Japan and China. Uh, when I landed in Japan and I looked around just the Tokyo airport, I realized that this was the most foreign place I'd ever been in my life. <laughs> Uh, for one thing, I was immediately approached by school-aged Japanese children in the airport holding cameras and asking to take a picture with me. And I soon realized that the reason they wanted to take a picture with me was because I was towering over everyone else. Six foot four, roughly, long, curly-haired, white American. Um, and I thought I was going to be the tourist, but I became the attraction very quickly. Um, and so... Another reason I felt immediately out of place was the language barrier. Uh, while Japanese people do to learn English, very few are willing to use English. Uh, they feel very embarrassed about their English ability. And so I found myself at a loss in most places because the signs, which were well lit, well marked, and appropriate places intended to be helpful, were in a different language, actually two different alphabets of the same language, Japanese which had no combination nor, or single letters that I recognized. Final reason, and that I felt kind of in a, in a sense foreign, was the first few words that I heard um, and then learned in Japanese because they were loudly whispered everywhere I went, behind cupped hands and behind my back. And these are the two words, oki and gaijin. Oki means big, not surprisingly. So everyone was going large. Giant. This is my favorite translation. Walloping. Okay. <laughs> the other word that I heard over and over again was gaijin, which means foreigner. Something like outsider or alien. Uh, this word would mean something like Gentile meant to the Jews in the first century. But to summarize, I immediately knew where I stood in Japan. I was the big foreigner <laughs> all the time, everywhere I went. And this made me, from the get-go, feel self-conscious and at times radically insecure. While I noticed the looks and the gestures, the whispers and the photo ops less and less as time went on over the weeks I stayed and lived there, um, I never lost the uncanny feeling, that uncanny sense of foreignness. But that feeling got better in a surprising way. It was during a homestay, a week-long homestay, with the Kawakita family in Kyoto. 
uh, they spoke virtually no English. <laughs> and they served meals that I did not even know how to approach eating. And then also they had all these children that were very curious and in my face all of the time, uh, whether from elementary school, middle school, or high school. Uh, and, but there was something about the way that they welcomed me into that family. Going along with them to water polo matches, uh, j making jokes in, in my very bad Japanese to Satoshi, their middle school boy. Uh, the way the last night that they surprised me with very large Japanese pajamas <laughs> and a steak dinner, and I had not eaten so well the entire trip. <laughs> uh, I felt by the end of that time so close to at home with them. And so usually without the English words to say it, the Kawakitas invited me into their home life. They gave me this peace and this access to the family's life and love. My summer in Japan uh, was the time and a place when I felt most uncomfortable and comfortable. Most uh, not at home and somehow at home. Most insecure and accepted. It was a time that reminds me most of what the local church feels like, even as a pastor. You see, being a big foreign American college student in the compact, compact, intricate island nation of Japan, this is not just my best illustration for first century Romans and Ephesus trying to fit into a predominantly Jewish early church. Although I have to say, it's a pretty good illustration, if I don't say so myself, about what it means to feel that way, right? The one with international power and global influence trying to fit into a tight-knit, proudly different, historically steeped people group. My experience as an American in Japan, though, is not just a good Jew-Gentile comparison point. The feeling of it for me fits somehow and personally applies to how we all feel about church, I think. Perhaps especially in this proud, slightly panicked cultural moment, when we're all taking in so much difference so quickly without agreed upon moral norms. We're living awash in pluralism. And so we can feel insecure even in the church and we can feel insecure about uh, and that insecurity in the church can lead to hostility or can lead to hatred. And that prideful response also has a corresponding shameful response. So sometimes we feel hatred about difference and sometimes we feel ashamed and hesitant in the face of difference. And so in, these, in this moment, in this church, we need someone bigger to show us the way. And so Paul lifts up Jesus Christ. He tells first century Jews and Gentiles, he tells 21st century Americans, along with the Japanese and every other global ethnicity and people group. Paul promises this about Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 18. To overcome our hatreds and hesitations, God gave us Christ's peace and Christ's access. So to overcome our hatreds and hesitations, God gave us Christ's peace and he gave us Christ's access. And really that two-part promise is what we're gonna take apart one step at a time in our outline. And so the outline that's projected behind me or in your e-bulletin is going to take those one step at a time. First, verses 14 through 16, God gave us peace 
in Christ's body to overcome our insecure hatreds. Second, verses 17 through 18, tells us that God gives us access through Christ's connections to overcome our insecure hesitations. So we're gonna look first at Jesus's peace, and then we're gonna look second at Jesus's access, and that's where we're going. Let's begin at the beginning. Look at verses 14 through 16, and the promise of peace in Christ's body or flesh. Verse 14 is amazing. It begins in our passage with a just wonderfully wild and direct truth. He himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. (laughs) He himself is our peace. This one phrase is so loaded, chock full of meanings that I'm just gonna have to unpack it one item at a time. (laughs) Okay, ready? First, notice the way that verse 14 emphatically emphasizes exactly who is our peace, okay? The original Greek here just adds flavor. It's this extra pronoun that's thrown in here. It's not just he, it's he himself. And so really all Paul's doing is picking up where the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Ezekiel left off. Paul doesn't want us to miss that Israel's peace, the Prince of Peace, our peace is Jesus. And this truth means something. It means we get lasting, this world, eternal peace. Peace just by being with Jesus. And I just want us to think for a minute, we chase peace in so many places and with so many people. We're just trying to find peace. And we're doing thousands of things to get more peace. But Jesus is peace. Jesus doesn't just bring peace. It's not like a side perk of Jesus, right? It's not like a conversion signing bonus. Peace is who Jesus is. Jesus is about at a character level peace. Jesus is peace incarnate. Therefore, peace comes from drawing near to Jesus or better, Jesus drawing near to us. Second notice, Jesus is not my or your individual peace. He's so much more than that. Jesus is our peace. And I love the many ways that we can apply this. Think about it this way. Pastor Scotty Smith shows us how this truth pushes against our very 21st century American notions of spirituality. He writes, knowing Jesus is personal, but it's not individualistic. And more positively, the fact that Jesus is our peace and not just my or your or my or your private peace, this means that we're now in this thing together. You, both you and me, both religious outsiders like the Gentiles were, and some of us feel like right now, and religious insiders like the Jews were and others of, others of us feel right now. We all need each other to experience more Jesus, to experience more peace. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And the rest of verses 14 through 16 are Paul's attempt to explain how. How is Jesus's peace possible? Even among people who have the most hostility for each other. Take the first century Jewish and, uh, Jews and Gentiles as an example. They hated and excluded each other even unto death. 
And so the Roman writer Juvenal gives us a taste of this. He shows us the Gentile contempt for the Jews. He says it this way, and it's projected behind me. Some, this is in a satire he wrote, some by chance were born to a father who observed the Sabbath. They worship nothing except the clouds and the holy heavens. Pointless. And since their father abstained from pork, they think it's just as sacred as human flesh. Silly. And while they all brought up to despise the laws of Rome, they're careful to learn and keep and revere the Jewish code. What hypocrites. Never to guide the uncircumcised where they're seeking the fountain to get a simple sip of water. How rude. Meanwhile, the first century Jewish contempt for the Gentiles can be summed up by the sign that was posted on the wall between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple inward. And here's what it said. If you wanted to get closer to God's presence in the temple, here's what you read on the way there. No foreigner or Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary. It was literally a wall and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And this sign and this wall between the Gentile courts and the Jewish inner temple is what the end of verse 14 is referencing in our passage. For Jesus, our peace made us one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul is writing this letter though before the physical destruction of the temple and that wall in AD 70, right? So he clearly means this verse 14 image to be spiritual primarily, not physical. And not just for the early church and their ethnic and cultural dynamics, but for us in the 21st century. Paul gives us these early church examples to push against how we typically think about the church. You ready? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you, do I think of the church as the place where there can be an end to divisions? Do we think of the church as the place where there can be an end to divisions? So maybe the church isn't primarily meant to be a spiritual pick-me-up. Maybe the church isn't just where I go because all my friends my age go there. Or maybe the church for Paul is how I can come together in the peace of Jesus with people who are otherwise different from me. Honestly, where else would you or I voluntarily go to hang out with people that don't share our interests and who are different socially, economically, racially, and interpersonally from me? Second question, do we think of the church as the place where there can be a breakdown of hostility? Do we think of the church as a place where there can be a breakdown of hostility? Maybe the church isn't just meant to be how I get something useful or feel warm and fuzzy. Maybe the church for Paul is, isn't always how I'd like it. And that's part of the point. I'm giving up my demands, my demands for just the right product at just the right time, the fully catered, uh, curated experience. And it's glorious to give that up. One scholar I read this week compared the church to the place where multiple raging rivers meet to form one bigger river. Um, I'm not a 
river scientist. I don't even know. <laughs> you can tell by the way I said that. I have not even, I'm not even in the ballpark. Uh, but the church is not meant to run like rivers side by side, right? It's not meant to be running like side by side without touching. The church, according to verses 14 and 15, are, is this place where these two rivers converge, causing rapids. That, that, that's called the conflux point. And, and again, river science. The conflux point is where the rapids are the, the most intense, where the two rivers merge together, where the dividing walls of hostility because of that intensity are broken down, where the intricate law of commandments expressed in the ordinances or regulations are abolished because they were being used by circumcised Jews and courtyards and contempt and ceremonies and sacrifices to exclude, not to include, the uncircumcised into the church. And do you realize that Jesus is still to this day daily breaking down our hatreds and abolishing religious snobbery left and right? There's an agony to this though, isn't there? This hurts a little bit. He pushes on how I want my Christian life to be. I want to be comfortable. I want to be with people like me who like me. I want God to bless my agenda for the day. Amen. Not to enact his agenda through me. But Jesus is in the conflux. Jesus is in the rapids created by very different people with different political opinions, different social circles, different takes on COVID-19. Jesus is in those differences that make us feel so insecure. That's unity with true diversity. That's self-sacrificial love. And do you know what unity and love do? They're the church's witness to the watching world. So we should not just endure differences. We should actively pray for differences in our midst. I love the way that the Christian poet W.H. Auden kind of puts a point on this. And he was asked by a magazine to ask um, why he believes in Jesus. And here's what he wrote. I believe because he, Jesus, he fulfills none of my dreams because he's in every way, uh, in every respect, the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Thus, if a Christian is asked why Jesus and not Socrates or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad, perhaps all he can say is none of the others arouse all the sides of my being to cry crucify him. But verses 15 and 16 are saying Jesus' peace is not all agony. It's not, it's actually also ecstasy. It's not all negative deconstruction. It's positive reconstruction as well. And so we see in these verses a picture of reconciliation in Jesus' one body that creates a whole new man that we're all a part of, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Jesus' church is a whole new body of water made from two very different rivers merging together. It's not one river swallowing up the other. It's, it's not an acquisition, it's a merger. And so this new Christian identity is not Gentiles becoming Jews or Jews becoming Gentiles or Africans becoming Europeans or Americans becoming Japanese. No, it's actually much more than just a power flip. Listen to how the Croatian Christian theologian living in America 
Miroslav Wolf puts it. Christians depart from their original culture. Christians can never, first of all, be Asians or Americans or Russians or Tutsis and then Christians. Christians are Christians first. Christians take a a distance from their gods of their own culture and because they give their ultimate allegiance to the God of all cultures and his promised future. When Christians respond to the call of the gospel, they put one foot outside of their culture while the other remains firmly planted in it. A Christian's distance is not flight from one's original culture, but a new way of living within that culture because of the new vision of peace and joy they have in Christ. What this means is this. The demographic tags and labels that we stick on other people and we stick on ourselves, Gentile or Jew, white, black, Asian American, Hispanic, college educated, high school dropout, River Run Reserve, Troutman Double Wide, Republican always Trumper, Democrat, I'm riding with Biden, male or female, rural or urban or suburban, vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, these tags and these labels, as important as they can be, our sociology is not primary. In Christianity, our primary identity is Jesus. I am in his one body the church, through the cross. He died for me. He died for my sins and all of my insecure hatreds. And I don't want to pretend that the world is colorblind. I don't want to pretend that the world is achievement blind, but I do want to give Jesus the ultimate primary word about who we are and about who I am. And there is such power in giving Jesus that word. There's such power in what he's doing in the church. And the only way that I can think to describe this power is to, is to reference a cartoon I watched as a child. <laughs> Voltron. Voltron. Uh, not known to many. I didn't realize how short it actually was. It made a huge impact on me, but only a few seasons, I think. <laughs> but uh, it, it has a more popular later imitator called Power Rangers. Uh, you might have been more familiar with that one. Same premise, each has a different color and they all uh, fight evil bad guys as different colors, okay? And in every episode, the plot's basically the same. One or a few heroes would sort of uh, have a fight with some big powerful enemy and they'd get into lots of trouble and they call for help. And then all the other colors, uh, all the other heroes would come and they would fight side by side, but then inevitably that wasn't enough. And so they had to do this thing where they merged together, where they fought as a new thing altogether. So each in my, in my Voltron version, each fighter in his cat-shaped spaceship would merge into one body, one new man, a giant super rob- robot named Voltron. And then as this new giant body, each hero comprising a different part of Voltron's body, a leg or an arm or a torso or a head, this Voltron would destroy the big bad enemy. Every episode. Do you get this illustration? (laughs) Right? Voltron is Jesus's body, the church. All of us and all of our differences with all of our skills and all of our assets, we're not just fighting side by side. We are united as one against all the enemy and all the evil on this planet. I mean, how else can we stand against cancer? How else can we stand against disordered eating? How else can we stand against racism and cancel culture? How else can we stand against plain old sin? 
But Jesus does not promise his peace for our hatreds only. He also promises our access for our hesitations. Access in one spirit to the Father. And we need this promise, right? We need, we need to belong body and soul to God because the differences between us don't just make us hostile to one another. The differences between us make us hesitant. We're insecure. We feel self-despair. A despair about ourselves with others and with God. And only Jesus' connection to God the Father in God's spirit can overcome that hesitant shame behind not wanting to join together as Jesus' church. And so briefly, verse 17, there's a promise that Jesus comes to you, no matter where you are, whether you're far off or nearby. You don't have to do something. You don't have to be something. Jesus shows up to you as you are, not as you should or could be. You get access. You get a seat at the table. You get to crawl into the lap of the God Almighty. And as a young child crawls into the lap of his doting father and chats his ear off about whatever you want. <laughs> that's, why verse, that's what verse 18 is promising. Access to God's unfailing, unconditional love brought to you by Jesus and his, his connection to the Father so that you and I can have a connection to the Father. But perhaps it doesn't feel like the incredibly life-changing good news it's supposed to be. Maybe you're like, heard it before, or too good to be true. Some of you have never trusted in Jesus, that he lived and died for you, that he's our peace and access, the way to God, that, he's not just a, that God's not just an idea or a force, but he's a father. And my encouragement to you is, do you wish this were true? What if it's too good not to be true? Some of us here though, others of us have trusted in Jesus and you're pretty sure he loves you and you're not, and you're not sure he actually likes you though. Likes being around you, likes being with you. Maybe it's just because it's so hard to be the real you around God. When you come to God in prayer or reading the Bible or Christian community, are you coming to God vulnerable and needy and even desperate? Or are you coming to God earning or pleasing, maneuvering and defensive? It's hard to know you're liked for you when you're busy being somebody else. Any kind of affection God gives to the other guy we're pretending to be doesn't go to us. At least it feels that way. I love how uh, Stephen Chbosky puts it in the book, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. If somebody likes me, I want them to like the real me, not what they think I am. Through Jesus, because he lived for all the good parts of us and died for all the worst parts, in the one Holy Spirit, every Christian shares, God likes the real you and the real me. Together, God likes and loves what is beyond, and it's beyond what other people think. Even my own shameful self-doubts. So that summer, between my junior and senior year of college in Japan, I finished up a Japanese conversation course, very basic. <laughs> and uh, it happened about the same time I stayed with the Kawakitas in Kyoto. <laughs> and so um, when we had to say goodbye, and they, they gathered us all in this sort of Japanese suburban rec center, <laughs> and there were all these people from all these generations, grandpas, grandmothers, middle-aged women, um, college-aged, studying abroad students, little children, and we're kind of gathered in this sort of 
big area, a big space in a, a community rec center. And I thought this was my time where I'm going to thank my family publicly and I'm going to use some Japanese, <laughs> which, you know, I was 20 something. Um, and so I did it. And I, and I ended my thank you with a simple phrase, Watashi wa Kawakita All that really means is my last name is Kawakita. The room fell hushed in silence, and I immediately regretted what I said. <laughs> I felt vulnerable. I felt exposed. I thought, man, that just looked so and sounded so desperate. But then I looked over at Mrs. Kawakita. And I just watched her unblinking eyes staring at me. And I saw her face scrunch up. And then I saw the tears start to flow like rivers down her cheeks. And she nodded in all of that quiet. And she just said one simple word. Hi. Yes. Yes. Yes, roughly six foot four. Long, curly haired foreigner. White American with a goofy laugh. Yes. You're mine. And yes, we're better together with you. We're bigger than we were. When we say to God in words or actions, especially with others in these insecure moments of difference, when we say, my last name is Christian, don't look to see what everyone else thinks. There are his tears, God's tears streaming down, tearing down divides. There is the soft yes that clicks in his throat saying, yes, there's always room for another person. You just make the celebration that much more joyful. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time and thank you for the opportunity to unpack some challenging and super comforting words at the same time, to talk about what we're doing and why we're here on this planet, let alone this building. And I just pray that you would use these words and you'd press them home in ways that you see fit. And would you, by your spirit, remind us of your peace and your access, of your fatherhood and the power of your son. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen.